You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Well, good morning, Citizens Church. I'm, I'm so honored and uh, excited to be here. Obviously, Providence is a um, sister church uh, to Citizens Church, and I uh, know a lot of, my wife and I know a lot of families uh, and have a lot of friends that go to Citizens, and uh, Bleeker and I go way back, and he uh, did all the music for our wedding, and then uh, Jamin, Bleeker, and I also, all, we went on a camping trip in Colorado a couple of uh, years ago. So um, just really dear friends and um, really um, honored to be here at, at Citizens. Love what the Lord is doing here. Um, my family, Meredith, three kids. I got two girls and a boy. Um, you know, we love uh, going to movies and watching movies as a family. And the, the most recent movie that we went to watch was the new rendition of Little Mermaid, the new live action Little Mermaid. I don't know how many of you had a chance to see that one. Uh, so we went to see that. And as you know, the story uh, goes that Ariel is this uh, mermaid who um, uh, obviously wants to be part of uh, the human world because she's fallen in love with this prince, Eric, that she has saved in the sea. And so uh, Ursula, the bad woman uh, in, the, in the story, uh, uh, allows her to become a human, but takes away her voice. And you know the story that Ariel then uh, has this dilemma where she's trying to uh, communicate who she is, that she is the girl who saved Eric. Uh, She's trying to communicate that to him and also communicate her love. I guess, you know, mermaids can't write, I guess, so that doesn't work and she can't speak. And apparently they never played charades under the sea. So uh, she can't do charades, I guess. Uh, So she can't communicate who she is, how, uh, you know, and her love. And so that's, that's the dilemma. And we know that really that story underscores, again, the importance of communication in any relationship, that any healthy relationship uh, must have good, constant uh, communication. And so when we look at Scripture, we find that the same is true in the most important relationship that we could ever have, and that's our relationship with God. And thankfully, that God is a communicating God. He is a God who desires to be known. He's a God who wants to communicate who he is to us so that we would know him and worship him and be fulfilled in him uh, and love him. He desires for us to know how much he loves us. And so uh, God does this. And by the way, that's very loving for God to desire uh, uh, for us to know him because uh, he knows that that is the most important relationship that, w- that, that we need, um, that we were made for him. And John 17, verse 3 says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. First Timothy 2 says that God desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. The truth isn't just a set of rules. The truth is a person. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so God wants to be known. And thankfully, we read in Psalm 19, uh, this incredible psalm that's penned by David, tells us that God has not left us without any communication or revelation that uh, this glorious psalm is going to move us from uh, what theologians would call general revelation to special revelation to the ultimate revelation of Jesus Christ and show us how God communicates himself to us. And my prayer is that God would enlighten 
uh, our eyes to who he is and his great love for us. So let's pray um, before we get started. Lord, we need you. We pray that your word, which you promise, accomplishes uh, the purpose for which it was sent and that it does not return void. We pray that your word would speak and direct and open our eyes to see Jesus, to see our need of you, to move us to faith, to believe in you. Uh, we love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's start with the revelation of the skies, the revelation of cre uh, creation, primarily um, the skies that, that the Lord has made. It says, the, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. And so general revelation is so-called general because, first of all, um, it speaks general things about God, right? It reveals God's uh, um, order, God's create, creative um, order. His, it reveals some of God, but it doesn't reveal the specifics, obviously, of who God is, um, his name, for instance, and what he is doing in the world. Um, and secondly, um, it's called general because it's not going to just a certain group of people. It's going out to all people without distinction, to all cultures, all races, all nations, uh, in all circumstances, it's speaking. And so general revelation, that's what theologians call, um, it's called general revelation. It has an inner witness and an outer witness. And the inner witness, um, again, uh, that's not in this psalm necessarily, but that is our inner conscience, that God uh, made everyone uh, in his image. And so everyone, even non-Christians, experience general revelation through the inward witness of our conscience. When we, whenever someone says, man, that's not right, that's not the way things ought to be. It's wrong to do something like that. You shouldn't have done that. They're appealing to uh, a sense of justice and rightness that God has given all of us. In Romans chapter two, it says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thought accuse or even excuse them. So this is the inner witness of general revelation. The outer witness is what this Psalm is referring to. Again, the witness of creation. And first it says that the, spot, the skies are speaking something to us. That God, uh, and it really makes sense that David would start here because this is the order of creation, right? You think of God first spoke the world. In the he Hebrews says that everything that we see was made out of things that are not. God made ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. He created everything we see by his powerful word. His word spoke creation into being. And so it's also the natural order of communication in life meaning we see the world before we understand words, right? And so it's interesting that he would start here. And this psalm is telling us that, when, again, when you look at the sky, when you look at creation, something is being communicated to you. Um, order, design, beauty. And this is not random or pointless, 
Okay, it's meant to point you to a creator. And why are we filled with wonder when we see an amazing sunset or we see, uh, you know, the amazing, um, the, the, uh, you know, at night, if you go out and, and see the stars. My wife and I on our honeymoon years ago, we were at, uh, on the big island of Hawaii and went to the top of uh, Mauna Kea. Some of you maybe have been there where a lot of nations actually have their observatory because it's the most beautiful place, clearest place to see uh, the stars. And so these stars, when you see them, uh, are saying something that, man, we are not by accident. We are the product of artistic design. And they're meant, to, they're meant to say, so are you. And that's what Psalm 19 is telling us. They're pointing us ultimately to God. If you were to drive, let's say, to, to Frisco, where I live, uh, let's say there's a sign that says this way to Frisco. You wouldn't stop at that sign and say, oh, this sign is Frisco. I've made it, right? No, it's a sign pointing you to Frisco. It's not the ultimate destination. In the same way, the stars are not meant to cause us just to marvel at them, but to see who they point to, to see that it points to God and for us to marvel at God. And that's what they're designed to do. They're specifically pointing us to the glory of God. Isaiah 40 tells us that God measures the universe in the span of his hand. Science continually uh, is expanding our understanding of how big the universe is. And when we realize how big the universe is and how powerful God is, and then we recognize how small we are, uh, it puts things in perspective. Neil Armstrong on one of his uh, space explorations, he says, it suddenly struck me that that tiny pea, pretty in blue, that I was looking at was the earth. I put up my thumb and shut one eye and my thumb blotted out the planet earth. I didn't feel like a giant, I felt very, very small. To think of how expansive God is and Louis Giglio, some of you know Louis Giglio, he speaks of uh, insignificant significance. In other words, when you see how massive God is, how small we are, it's a marvel that God cares and God speaks to us personally. Psalm chapter eight, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, um, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And so the skies are speaking, and man, they're speaking constantly. It says day to day, night to night. The the, the communication is wordless. Now, it seems to contradict verse 3, seems to contradict verse 4 and 5, but what it's referring to is that it's a communication that's, again, without words. Uh, Think of when you had a newborn. Uh, So I'm thinking years ago when my um, firstborn, Elise, when she was just a newborn and she would cry and scream and we were new parents trying to figure out, uh, there was a lot of general revelation happening, wordless communication, right, was happening in my home. And then that word, wordless communication caused Meredith and I to try to seek some more specific, special revelation, like what's wrong? Does she need her diaper changed? Does she need more food, more milk, right? Uh, that's general revelation is meant to cause you to seek out more revelation. And that's what this is doing. It's wordless. And man, that means it, again, is universally comprehensible. 
It's universal, verse 4 says. It's going out to all the earth. It's an amazing wonder to think about the stars that we look at today, the same stars that Abraham was taken out, and God showed all of the stars and said, so will your descendants be. It's the same moon that you think of Jesus praying in the garden before he went to the cross. Um, And so Romans 1 is telling us that this universal revelation is really the basis of human accountability. Romans 1 says that the things of God are shown clearly to us in creation so that all are without excuse. It's over their head. All the world can just look up and see that there is a God. I went to the University of Texas. Don't hiss at me. I know it's coming everywhere I go. So anyway, uh, and at, at UT, um, when I was a college student, you'd walk through the main mall and uh, on the UT tower is just uh, blazing these words, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. <clears throat> and I, I, every time I walk by, I look up at that. I'd go up to uh, some college students, friends of mine or uh, even strangers. I'd walk up and say, hey, have you ever seen that? And they go, oh yeah, I love that. I go, what do you think that means? And I've heard everything, man. I heard like, oh yeah, just higher education, man. It'll set you free. I'm like, no, that's not. And it would be amazing. I'd tell people, you know who said that? And I'd take them to scripture and show them how Jesus says, uh, you shall know the truth. The truth. And their, their eyes are open like, what? And so like, it's amazing to me that again, this, this place that so many are, are lost and walking underneath them, there's this like, kind of like verse one says, this firmament, this canopy that is just saying, you shall know the truth. The truth says you free. The answer is right above them. And so the sky is communicating. Secondly, I want you to see that the sky also doesn't just speak. The sky actually, creation is exulting in, in God. That's what verse five and six says. In them, he has sent the tent, he has sent uh, a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit uh, to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. Not only does the sky speak, but they themselves are glorifying God. And, and, and what poetic language David uses. He equates the sun uh, to a bridegroom. He compares it to a beaming bridegroom filled with wonder and anticipation at the arrival of his bride. Uh, I was married in 2008, and I did not go up and just kind of go, ho-hum. No, I was beaming. In fact, I think we got a picture I want to show you. That's me when I was waiting for my bride to come down uh, the aisle, okay? I mean, if you're, by the way, if you don't have a man, ladies, at the end that at least has something similar to that, something's wrong, right? I mean, you're beaming. You can't wait. You're, you're, you're exulting in, in, the, in the coming of, of the bride down that aisle. In the same way, it's saying that the sun is like this bridegroom that is going across the sky, exulting in who God is. And I think sometimes, man, we've lost our wonder. Um, Ralph Waldo Emerson said, he was once asked what we would do if the stars only came out uh, once every thousand years. He says, no one would sleep that night, of course. We would be ecstatic, delirious, uh, made rapturous by the glory of God. Instead, the stars come out every night and we watch television. 
You know, and again, uh, it's not a, just to exult in the, in the skies, but what they are exulting in. This, the sun reveals God's glory. It reveals God's providence. It speaks of this circuitous route that it takes. And that is meant to show us God's order, that God's design, that God isn't like what deists would think, a God who creates this watch and winds it up and lets it run its own course. No, he is eminently involved. He is a, a God who is sustaining the world, the scripture says. All things consist in him, Colossians says. That Hebrews says that uh, by the word of his power, that Jesus actually holds all things together. And so everything is working as it should because God is causing it to move and, and work as it should. In Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas speak of God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Again, that is the witness of God. And so what we see here is creation speaks God's glory, uh, points to his order, his creation. It, it, it even exalts in him. But again, by the way, side note, we should do the same as God's creatures. We've been created in his image. We should, do, we should be communicating who God is with our words and with our actions, right? We should be communicating the truth. But not only that, friend, we should be exalting in him. We should be showing the world that he is the only treasure that satisfies us, right? We should be showing the world by the way we prioritize our lives that Jesus is the treasure of life, is our treasure. We should be showing the world when we experience joy in the midst of suffering that, man, this world is not really all there is that we have something that transcends our circumstances, be they, be they good or bad, and that is the treasure that we have in Jesus. We should be exulting in him. But friend, this general revelation is not enough, is it? It's not enough. We need special revelation. Again, back to my illustration about my newborn. I mean, we needed to know, all right, what is going on? And in the same way, the, the skies, the creation is meant to uh, beckon us to seek out God and to find him. And so God doesn't just leave it there, but he moves on to special revelation. And theologians call it special or specific because it it's, tells us specific things about God. And it tells us who he is. It tells us why he made us. It tells us, you know, how we are loved. And it tells, and it goes to a specific group of people, not, to, not all understand it, but those who have their eyes enlightened and opened because the things of God, as scripture says, are only spiritually discerned. And so the revelation of scripture is what it moves to. Let's read in verse um, seven through 11 now. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much uh, fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned in keeping them. There is great reward. 
I want you to see how, you know, God, when you think of special revelation, he does speak in supernatural ways also. We know in scripture that he comes and he speaks in visions and dreams. You think of Cornelius uh, in Acts 10 having a vision to call on Peter to come into his home and speak to him, right? So there are ways, but David is singling out scripture and saying that it is a far greater revelation than nature and even the supernatural, if you will, the miraculous, let's say, special revelation. That it is better in three primary ways. It gives life, it gives wisdom, and it gives joy. Did you catch that? First it says, it is perfect to revive the soul. Okay, it means it's giving you life. It's perfect, meaning it's flawless as compared to general revelation. And it gives life. In 2 Peter 1, it says that the word of God uh, is the seed that brings you to spiritual faith. So in other words, you have a physical seed that led to your, your physical birth. The, the spiritual seed that leads to your spiritual birth is the word of God. This word of God that was spoken, either when somebody preached it or your parents maybe shared it with you or modeled it or like it was for me. I actually read the scripture for myself as a 17-year-old. But the, the word of God was implanted in your heart and that's how you came to faith, all right? And that's why, how it gives life. And so David is saying it can, it, it can do what general revelation cannot do. It can bring you to life spiritually. The same God who spoke creation into existence can speak spiritual life into you through his word. You know, I go to the Middle East often and hear uh, stories of people coming to Christ through visions and dreams. And sometimes we hear those stories and we think, man, why don't we have more visions and dreams in the West? You know, may, you know we're, we don't have enough faith like they do or whatever it might be. But listen to me, friends, I've heard testimonies of people who've come to Christ through a vision or a dream, and then they're given the word of God. And can I tell you something? I've looked at their Bibles, and their Bibles are just worn out. Every page, some of these men and women I've, I've, I've met in the Middle East with writings on every page, they're devouring the scripture. They're not looking for more visions and dreams. They know they have something better. Second Peter chapter one, Peter says it this way. He says, when I heard the voice of God on the Mount of Transfiguration, do you know Peter actually heard the audible voice of God? When I heard the voice of God saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then he goes on to say, you have something better than that. Through the written word of God that was written as men were led by the Holy Spirit. And he says, you would do well to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dark place. You have something better through the scripture. And so it gives life. John chapter 20 says that the things that were written in John's gospel were written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you would have life in his name. It gives life by generating faith, which is the vehicle by which we are saved that we come into a knowledge of God, that we come to understand who he is and our, our sins are forgiven and we come to life. It revives the soul, or if you will, another translation said it converts the soul. It's perfect to convert the soul. It brings about spiritual life, first of all, by revealing our sin to us. You look at scripture, for instance, um, 
You know, general revelation, think of the inner witness, may bring us a guilty conscience, but it can't ultimately give us life, right? And so it points us to scripture. In Romans chapter seven, Paul says it this way, yet if it, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. And he goes on to say, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. And that's good news, by the way, meaning the, the commands, the law showed me that I'm a sinner and I need grace. Because before that, I didn't know what sin really was. And so the law is meant to drive you. Galatians chapter three says that the purpose of the law is to be a tutor, actually to drive you to Jesus. The law, the Old Testament law, for instance, the 10 commandments, they are like, if you will, uh, a carpenter's level. You know that tool that a carpenter uses with the bubble in the middle that can show you if the foundation is off? It can only show you, right, that the foundation is off. It can't fix the foundation. In the same way, the law confines all under sin. It shows us our need to be fixed, if you will. And it points us to Jesus. So the law drives us, and then the scripture then reveals the gospel, and the gospel draws us. Ephesians chapter 2 says, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ, and by grace you have been saved. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. So ultimately, the scripture gives life by pointing us to Jesus. I'll come back to that. But let me just move on. It gives us life, shows us our need, and then points us to Jesus. It also makes us wise. This is what it says. It's sure, verse 7, it's sure to make wise. goes on and it says this. Um, the commandments, this is verse 8. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. In other words, Scripture is, uh, the word that is used there, pure, it means it's without error. Okay? It is... Um, it is what uh, shows us truth from error. It makes us wise to be able to discern, again, what is right and what is wrong. For example, the world tells me that this life is all about me and um, that ultimately uh, it's, it's just about me. That's how I'm gonna be satisfied. Scripture trains me that life is about Jesus, that I was made for his glory. And that that alone will satisfy me. The world tells me that I'm supposed to be happy. And the scripture tells me that, no, God desires me to become like Christ, become holy. The world tells me that this world is all there is and that I should store up treasures here. But scripture is warning me that this world is passing away. Store up treasures in heaven. So no wonder in verse 11 it says, Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. So scripture makes us wise to know truth. And by the way, it's got a cumulative effect. In Hebrews chapter five, it says, the mature are those who hear the word of God and put it into practice. And they are, they are training their powers of discernment to discern good from evil as they put into practice what they hear. So the scripture gives life, the scripture makes us wise, and the scripture rejoices our heart. It says here, uh, that, that it's right to revive the heart. The word right there, it, it means a straight edge. In other words, think of a, a ruler, something that, basically think of it this way, something that everything else is judged by to see whether it is right or wrong. 
And that's what scripture says. John 17, Jesus says, sanctify them in your word. Your word is truth. So the word of God, uh, we don't judge its truthfulness by outside. No, everything outside the word of God is judged whether it is right or wrong as it lines up to scripture. And so friend, it says that it revives the heart. What does that mean? The commandments. If you read Psalm 119 over and over again, he says, Man, my heart delights in your commandment. Why? Because when you follow the way of God's commands in Scripture and you taste the life that is at the end of that road, it brings you joy, right? It's like the psalmist said, Psalm 16, 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And the mature Christian is the one who is dis, who is tasted. Deuteronomy 30 says there's two roads. One leads to death, one leads to life. They've walked, the mature Christian has put to practice the things of God and tasted life. And so friend, it gives us joy. But friend, now I'm going to move from natural or general revelation to special, the scripture, and then ultimately Jesus. Scripture is pointing us ultimately to Jesus, all right? And this is the final way that God speaks. It's the ultimate way God speaks. Hebrews says it this way, that long ago God spoke through his prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, by whom he appointed, whom he appointed, excuse me, the heir of all things and through whom he also created the world. Colossians says that he is the image of the invisible God. John chapter one again says he is the word of God that was made flesh. So you wanna hear God, you wanna be communicated to by God, look to Jesus. He is the ultimate revelation of who God is. And I love how this Psalm starts with the son, S-U-N, and it ends with the son, S-O-N. And you say, where do you see that? Let's read verses 12 through 14. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I want you to see David pleas for pardon. Who can discern his errors? The question is rhetorical, meaning the answer is obviously no one can. This is the deceptive sins that all of us commit, sometimes without knowing. There are sins like pride, greed, jealousy. They sneak up on us. We commit them, and later we realize what we have done. David says, declare me innocent from hidden faults. Okay. Then he moves on to a plea for power. He says there are presumptuous sins even, those that we premeditate, that we know are against God's will. In other words, we know that we're sinners and we are enslaved in our sin, that we can't help but sin. He says, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. David is saying that there's no way to fully escape sin as he begs for pardon and power. Every one of us, friend, are born with a sin nature, a bent to go away from God and to do whatever we like to please ourselves. This is what this is saying. But then in verse 14, he says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. 
So don't miss what's happening here. He's saying, I am a sinner. He's literally saying, there's, there's no hope for me apart from you. And then he says, let me and my words be acceptable. That word acceptable throughout the Old Testament is often tied to a sacrifice that was made that would be acceptable by God. So the question becomes, how do we who are hopelessly trapped in sin become acceptable to God? And this is where Jesus comes in, verse 14. My Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That's the answer. Jesus, friend, is the ultimate redeemer. He is the only one, friend, who kept all of God's law and commands. He was our representative in obedience. The scripture says he was tempted in every way that we were, yet without sin. He lived the sinless life. Did you know, growing up as a Muslim, I was even taught that Jesus was sinless, but I didn't know why. So that he would be a spotless sacrifice, friend. He kept the whole law so that his, he, all of the Old Testament sacrifices were incomplete because they had to be repeated over and over again. They were preparing us and pointing us to the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God who died on the cross and shed his blood. He became a curse, Galatians says, in order to remove the curse of sin from us. Ephesians 1.7 says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. What's amazing about the gospel, friend, is when you believe in Jesus, when you trust in him, when you accept his work on the cross as payment for your sin, not only are all your sins, past, present, and, and future, paid for in full, and you are forgiven, but what's more is you don't just go to neutral with God, being forgiven of your sin. What's amazing to me is that then his perfect record is credited to you. His righteousness is imputed to you. So that when you stand before God at the day of judgment, it's not just that your sins are forgiven and you're neutral before God. No, he looks at you and he sees Christ's perfect life covering you. And he accepts you because of what Jesus did. And friend, this is why it ultimately leads us to exalt the revelation of God and exalt in who Jesus is. I, I love how Hebrews 9 says it this way that Jesus is the perfect sacrifice because he moves us from dead works to truly serving God. Let me explain this real quick and we're coming to an end here. The only way that I can really live for God and not for myself is when I know that I am freely forever forgiven in Christ. Right? If I am still trying to earn God's favor, then I'm not really living for him when I do things for him. I'm really doing it for myself. I'm trying to get something from him. But it's only when you know that you are freely forever forgiven in Jesus, that he loves you. He laid his life down for you. He gave you the reward of his righteousness. It's only then when you now live for him. The Bible, Romans 12:1. in view of God's mercy, he says, Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's the way the Bible works, doesn't it? The first 11 chapters are the indicatives, all right, what has been done for you in Jesus. And then in Romans 12, 1, it says, therefore, go do this. But most religions are going to say, do this, 
and then maybe you'll get God's favor. Christianity is exactly reversed. And that order is important because, again, you're not really living for God if you're still trying to get something from him. And so when you know you've been forgiven, you are freed up. 2 Corinthians 5, the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all die, that those who live, live no longer for themselves, but for him who died and rose again. So friend, the response to revelation is this, let the word of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So before I pray, let me say, number one, trust in Jesus as your redeemer. There is no other way for you to be forgiven, made right with God, to know God than through Jesus. Secondly, once you know him, be freed up by the grace that you have to live for him, to exult in him, to make him known to this world. So I want you to bow your head with me and I want you to close your eyes as I lead you in prayer. And I'm gonna ask that you don't just kind of tune me out right now um, because I want us to really respond to the word. The scripture says that we are not to just be hearers of the word, but doers of it. And so if you're here in this place this morning and maybe you're saying, man, I'm not sure if there's ever been a time where I have truly understood that, man, I am trapped in my sin. I do not seek God in my own. I go my own way. I, I want to be God for myself. But I know that Jesus has done what I could never do. He's lived a sinless life. He died for, in my place. He took the death and the punishment I deserved. And then he hands me the gift of righteousness, his righteousness. And maybe you're saying, man, I'm not sure if I've ever truly received that gift. Again, the point of scripture is to show you Jesus and to move you to faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So if you've heard the word of God and you want to believe in Jesus, I just ask you right now, even, even in this place, just in your heart, would you cry out, Jesus, I need you. I confess my sin to you. I confess my need of you. And I put my faith in you. And those of us who do know Jesus, God, thank you. Would you thank him for communicating to us? That was not a given. In love, revealing himself in creation, in scripture, and ultimately in the person of Jesus. If you're a believer, I pray that this text moves you to want to know more about him. Paul says that that is the pursuit of his life, that I would know him in fellowship, even in his suffering, that I would be conformed into his image. That is my pursuit. David says, one thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the presence of the Lord all the days of my life to inquire in his temple. I pray that this God who speaks moves us to want to listen and to communicate with him more, to know him more, and then to go and exult in him and make him known. We need you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.